Over recent years, uh, public polling has shown a consistent and, and a troubling trend. The church in the United States, and you probably know this, is in steep decline. Just 25 years ago, um, I was alive 25 years ago, it's not ancient history, 70% of Americans claim to be a church member. Hey, that's pretty high, 7 in 10, 3 quarters, basically, of Americans claim to be a member of a church. Now, that doesn't mean they were saved or going to heaven, but church was important and people would claim to be members of various churches. Today, that has dropped to just 50%, which is still much higher than other uh, industrialized nations in the Western world, but a 20% decline in just a quarter of a century. That is very, very quickly when we're talking about social trends covering a nation as big as ours. Those claiming no religious faith of all the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, continues to increase, uh, which eventually, if trends continue, will, uh, will outstrip the number of people claiming to be Christians in our nation. We ask the question, what is going on? Why is this happening? When, when churches in the United States, we have sort of more resources, more exposure, more tools at our disposal than really the Christian church anywhere else in the world at any point in history. Why is the church in decline? And I think it's overly simplistic to sort of say, well, it's just one thing. It's you know, the schools or the media. The, I'm sure they're playing a, a factor in this. There is a swirl of trends. There's increased secularization going on in our country. We, we, we are living at the most prosperous time in history, and what tends to happen when people are more prosperous? They forget God. I think that's one of the factors. We've been experiencing the collapse of the facade of cultural Christianity, and so people are just simply being more honest as they just say, you know what, church really wasn't that important to begin with. I didn't really believe that stuff. It was just a nice way to sort of fit in uh, the, the social climate of where we were living. So how should we respond to this decline? Some have tried to sort of plug the dike with church growth philosophies. Over the last sort of 30 years, there was a movement in evangelical Christianity called the Church Growth Movement, which was all about how can we sort of calibrate church to sort of meet the culture on its own terms and build big megachurches. And indeed, some big megachurches have been built. But for every megachurch that's built, hundreds of medium-sized and small churches decline, meaning the overall number of people involved in the life of the church is going down. As churches die, many gravitate to the megachurch model with the celebrity pastor. And now, I'm not suggesting that every megachurch is bad. Not at all. There are some wonderful churches that are really big that God is using. I praise him for that. But I think there's something amiss when we, we say, oh, look, Christianity is doing really well because there's a huge church with 10,000 people in it over here, when there's something terribly wrong. Many have concluded that in order to thrive in this modern world, we have to put a spectacle on to rival that which people can find on TV. People believe that in order to thrive, we must offer, offer a raft of amenities to the attendees, else the customers will go elsewhere. And that's precisely how churches market themselves, as offering amenities to customers who are shopping around. You hear the term church shopping. Uh, because churches sort of function like a religious mall in today's culture. This consumer model of church where people show up to sort of be entertained, people show up in order to see the performance, show up to see the spectacle, 
might attract large crowds, but it does not build faithful disciples or healthy churches. What I want to do today is look at Ephesians 4 and see how the prescription that God gives to us for how he wants his church to be built. Jesus promised in Matthew's gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, the secular media will not either. Let's quit pretending that the world is so strong and powerful when Jesus is the risen king who has conquered everything. I want to contend today that the Bible gives us a blueprint for how God wants his church to be built. To change the metaphor, he's given us the plan to build the body, for body building to occur, for the church to grow, to build itself up. And what's surprising in these verses that we just read a minute ago is he doesn't give a prescription where he says, well, get a charismatic personality, get a celebrity who will attract a large crowd together and try to draw people in by offering amenities to the community. No, instead we get something very countercultural, counterintuitive. Instead of building the church around a celebrity pastor with a charismatic personality, the blueprint of God's word builds it around the timeless truth of God's word. And instead of measuring church growth in terms of people in the pews or dollars in the bank account, Growth is measured in terms of spiritual maturity. It is a totally different paradigm, a totally different rubric for saying, what is a healthy church? It's not necessarily the one that's the biggest, that has the biggest budget or the most people who show up to the event on Sunday. It's the place where people are being conformed to the image of Christ, which, yes, will involve us reaching more people, will involve and result in numerical growth. But the primary rubric for growth It's down in verse 13, that we grow to the knowledge of the Son of God, that we are like Jesus Christ. So how does God want to build the church? How does God want to build Cloverleaf Baptist Church? He wants to build Cloverleaf Baptist Church through an every-member ministry. Not through a group of professional experts, but every saint being equipped to edify and to build the church and to be involved. Very simply, God wants to use you, every single one of us here today. If you're a born-again Christian, you're part of this church, God wants to use you to build his church. So let's dive into this text. Let's walk our way through this. How does God go go about building his church? Well, number one, God builds his church by by empowering every saint. So verses 1 to 6 we looked at last week emphasizes the oneness and the unity of the body. The emphasis is on the corporate, that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ is to have unity. And not just this assembly, but globally and universally. There's to be unity. But sometimes we make the mistake of saying if there's going to be unity, there can be no diversity. The way to have unity is for sameness. The the way to have unity as a nation is for everybody to be the same. Or the way to have unity as a church is to have one demographic that everybody fits a certain mold. Verse 7 explodes that notion. Switching from the unity, the whole, the corporate, the body, verse 7 comes back to say, but unto every one of us. It comes down to the individual. It says, now, we've talked about the whole. Let's talk about the individual. Unto every one of us is grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In other words, every believer has been given grace, has been given a gift. Uh, Other passages talk about spiritual gifts. Everyone has been given an ability, and guess what? They are not all the same. There is a strength that comes through the church having a diversity of gifts and a diversity of people and a diversity of ages and a diversity of ethnicities and a diversity of races. That is God's 
blueprint for the church, not that it be a homogenous group where everybody's exactly the same and sort of marches around like it's 1984, but where everybody is different, and the differences are God-given and are given for the strength of the church. Verse 7 describes those who have been gifted to every one of us. The us being those who are believers in Jesus Christ. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus. God has gifted you. Grace has been given. Now, we see grace elsewhere in Ephesians. By grace, you're saved through faith. God's generosity, his kindness, that is what saves us. But the same grace that has saved us has also empowered us, given every single one of us some ability with which we can build the body of Christ up. Grace here is a reference to spiritual gifts. Turn back with me to the book of Romans because I want you just to get a sense of Paul's thinking on this topic. Romans chapter 12. Paul, does, Paul talks about spiritual gifts in other places. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 4. For as we have many members in one body... And all members have not the same office. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Okay, he compares the church to a, a body. You, you can't have the liver doing the function of the brain. Okay, I'm not a, I'm not a physiologist. I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I'm pretty sure the brain can't do the liver's job and the liver can't do the brain's job. That's not how it works. Every body part has a unique function. Paul's saying the same way in the church. The fact that we are different means every one of us have a different role to play, something indispensable to contribute. Having then, verse 6, gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. You see that phrase, exact same phrase in Ephesians 4. So our gifts are according to the grace given to us. So it's Jesus' grace who gives us different gifts, different abilities. Whereby, whether prophecy, so there's one of the gifts, the ability to proclaim God's word. Let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, that's service. Let us wait on our, our serving. Or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation. He that gives, let him do it with simplicity. He that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Gives a little sampling here, just like, hey, these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. The ability to make a difference in someone else's life. 1 Corinthians 12 makes much the same point. Just pop over there, 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Okay, so there's an underlying unity. We have the same Holy Spirit who gives a diversity of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 5. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. That idea of profit is not, out of profit myself. God's given me this gift to just sort of give me a, a cooler walk with Jesus. No, God's given us gifts to benefit the body. That's the point. What is a spiritual gift? Is some God-given ability that every Christian has to do spiritual good to other people. And guess what? We don't all get the same gifts. Not everyone has the ability to teach, right? And there's a lot of people who are like, that's the last thing I would want to do. Do not give me a Sunday school class or put me behind the pulpit. That's a blessing because we don't need a church of a bunch of people teaching and nobody listening or learning, right? God gives other people this gift where they say, I, I, I may not teach, but I can serve. I can do the hands-on meeting needs in people's lives so they can hear the word of God and walk with Jesus. And listen, none of us get all the gifts. There's no one person, there's nowhere in the Bible that says, and to the pastor I give all the gifts that he will be the jack of all trades. No, 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 no. Uh, God doesn't do that. God gives 
different gifts to different people, so we all need each other, just like every system in the body is necessary, so every member in the church is essential. So back to Ephesians 4, verse 7. Every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You might say, I don't like the gift that I got. I wanted, I wanted a gift where I could be in charge. The gift is according to his, the measure of the gift of Christ. They're different. The one who makes us different is Jesus. So we don't get all the same gift, and none of us gets all the gifts. That means all of us have an essential role to play. Like a body, every system has a unique function. Like a machine, every gear has a unique place. So you say, how do I figure out my spiritual gift? You know, it's been popular at different times to people go on and take these tests, you know, answer these questions, and it's like finding your Briggs-Meyer, what is that, Briggs-Meyer personality thing, and I'm an ENTJ and my spiritual gift. There's nothing in the Bible that says take a test to figure it out. Like, I've, I've read the thing, and it's not in there. You know how you find your spiritual gift? You just start serving. You find something, I've got a desire to do this thing. God's given me this desire to, and an ability to do something, and I start doing it. And if it results in people loving Jesus more, that's probably your spiritual gift. If you like a Venn diagram, um, it's the place where an ability and a desire and effectiveness all intersect. That's probably your spiritual gift, and you might have more than one of them. So how do you figure out your spiritual gift? You don't sit around like taking a test, staring at the mirror, gazing at your navel. You get involved in people's lives to find your spiritual gift. Get involved. Start serving. And ask other people. Listen, if you think you have the gift of teaching, but nobody else thinks you have the gift of teaching... Um, if you teach and nobody, like you're teaching and people are like, I've got literally no clue what that guy's talking about. I'm sorry, I'm lost. You might not have the gift of teaching. Or you think, man, I've got the gift of compassion. And you come to show compassion to people and they're, li- they're, they're just like, this is awful. Uh, you might not have the gift of compassion. Uh, so do ask other people. That's why this happens in the body. We don't find our spiritual gift in isolation. We find our spiritual gift in community. We don't find it through introspection, but through service, through involvement. But verses 8 to 10 highlights for us, notice where the focus goes, not on the gifted ones, but on the one who gives the gifts, on the giver. And this is incredible because Paul in in this Ephesians passage is going to link these spiritual gifts to the victory of Jesus Christ. This is stunning. He said, here's the basis. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He quotes Psalm 68. I had Raymer read that entire chapter, all 35 verses, not just to be like, hey, Raymer, get up and read a whole chapter, but because I want us to, to have rattling around in our brains the whole context where this verse comes from. It describes the victory that God has won on behalf of his people. It goes back to Mount Sinai, God's presence with his people, conquering the land. And then what gets described is this victory parade in Jerusalem. So you think about Israel. They go off to battle. What do they take? They take the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence with them. And now they return to Jerusalem and begin to climb Mount Zion to Temple Mount. Who's leading the procession? The Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God. It's like God is ascending back to his throne. And behind him is the army celebrating, and in tow are all the captives coming in this victory celebration. In Paul's day, the Romans would hold what were called triumphs. So you're Julius Caesar, you go and beat up on the Gauls, and so the Senate will award you with a triumph. So you get to come to Rome and ride down the main thoroughfare on your chariot, waving to the cheering crowds. Behind you are all of the captives, all the slaves in chains, chained to your chariot, saying, this general absolutely smashed the enemy. What's being described in verse 8? He ascended on high, 
and he led captivity captive. Okay, that is a Hebrew way of saying he took a whole bunch of captives. Okay, you go into battle, and you come out with a bunch of captives. That means you won. They were all like, don't bother fighting. Lay down your arms. Surrender. That's the best shot we've got. This is to say that the one who ascends on high has won an absolute, complete, total victory over every enemy. So who's this describing when he ascended on high? Well, in the context of of Psalm 68, it's talking about God. Here, in the way Paul is using it, he's speaking of Christ. Um, Now, if if you were paying attention, you'll notice that the quote in Psalm says that he received gifts, but here in Ephesians says he gives gifts. And those are two different words. Receiving and giving are two different things. Like, so which is it? And commentators go around and around in circles on it. I think here's the idea. Paul is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's giving this a, sort of a free quote of this passage, and he is bringing some interpretation in. The way things worked in the ancient world, if you go off, you go fight a big battle, you smash the enemy, you take all their gold and silver, so you've received gifts from them. You know what you do with those? You distribute them to the army, and we see that in the Old Testament as well. When you win a battle, the, the, the soldiers and the people in the crowds get lavished with all of this gold and silver and stuff. So you receive the plunder so that you can distribute the plunder. That's the idea. So Jesus has won the victory. He's got all these captives in tow. He's plundered the enemy, and now he's distributing the plunder to his people. What's the plunder that he's talking about? Spiritual gifts. He gives these spiritual gifts as a function of the smashing victory he won at the cross and at the empty tomb. So your spiritual gift is not just, hey, I've got a spiritual gift. This is really awesome. It is the result, it is the result of the blood-won victory of Christ on the cross. It is the result of the empty tomb. It, there would be no spiritual gift if the tomb were still occupied. There would be no spiritual gift if Satan were not defeated. So verses 9 and 10 now just give us a commentary on it. Now, this is literally how it would come across in the Greek. Now, the he ascended, so to put that in quotes, does that not also mean that he first descended? In other words, Paul is saying that the ascension of Jesus, this is what they're talking about. Remember, after Jesus rises from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father to sit at his right hand and to rule and to reign and to intercede for his people. That implies that he first descended, right? The ascension applies a prior descent. In this context, a lot of people do some crazy stuff with verse 9. They're like, oh, descended into the lower parts of the earth. That means Jesus went to hell. Again, even the Apostles' Creed will say that, you know, that he, Jesus went to hell. We believe that Jesus went to hell. I think that's reading way too much into that. He ascended, okay, at the end of his ministry, which means he descended at the beginning of his ministry. This is talking about not about Jesus going to hell. There's nowhere in Scripture that I can see that supports that notion. Rather, this is talking about the incarnation. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We can go to Philippians 2 for a commentary on this reality. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient all the way to the death of the cross. The bottom rung of the ladder is not Jesus going to hell, but is the death on the cross. He dies and he's buried, and then he rises three days later in complete triumph over death and hell and Satan. He's won the victory. In Luke 11, Jesus gives an analogy. He says, if you're going to go rob the strong man's house, 
So think about this guy. He's got all this plunder in his house, and you're like, you want to go rob him. And he's standing out there with his, you know, with his sword and his armor. Before you get into the house, what do you got to do? You got to defeat the strong man. What this is saying is Jesus defeated the strong man. Jesus defeated Satan, and then he has broken into Satan's prison, and he's taken out all the captives that Satan held. You know who the captives are who are chained to the chariot? It's us. We're chained to the chariot. We were captives to Satan. Now we're captives to Christ. And we've been lavished with gifts. He's taken us who are enemies, and he's made us his friends and brought us into his nation and lavished gifts upon us. So the idea in verse 9 is the one who ascended, it makes sense that he first ascended to the lowest earth. He came all the way to earth. He came and took on the form of a human. He went to the cross. He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. The idea here is the same Jesus. The same Jesus who was born in that manger is the same Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father and it's the same Jesus who lavishes gifts on his people. We can't talk about spiritual gifts without talking about the gospel. These aren't just sort of like, hey, there's some people who want to talk about gifts and tongues and miracles. And there's, Jesus is sort of nowhere to be heard in the conversation. Paul is taking Jesus saying he's the one who gives these gifts out, and he gives them because he won the victory, because he defeated death, because he defeated sin, because he defeated Satan. He has conquered, and he's now lavishing gifts on his people. What a thought. Does that not take the idea of your spiritual gift? If God wants to grow his church, and he wants to use you, and guess what? He has empowered you, every one of us. For us to sit on the sidelines and be like, I'll let someone else serve, is ludicrous. When you've been given the spoils of the victory of Jesus, when you have been, you've been in the victory parade, say, I get to now serve the conquering king, and I get to be part of this victory in serving as he fills all things. He's ascended far above all heavens. He's in the place of highest power, highest authority, that he may rule over the entire universe. And we get to be a part of that. So how does God build the church? He builds the church by empowering every saint. It means you can't sit back and say, well, I have nothing to contribute. I'm just going to show up Sunday morning like eight seconds before the service starts and I'm going to just dart out right away. Christianity, church is not a spectator sport means every one of us has a place on the field. There's nobody sitting in the stands. We all have a, have a place, to, a role to fill in accordance with that gift. But we move on to this second part of the text. Verse 11 begins a new sentence. And in Greek, that sentence runs all the way to verse 16. One big, long, massive sentence, but I want to break this into sort of a couple of parts. God builds his church not only by empowering his people, but by equipping Every saint. Just get the thought here in verses 11. And he gave. Here's some of the gifts that he has given. This is just a sampling. We read the other passages. You can read about the the, the gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4. But here's some of the gifts he gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Um, Going to sort of zero in, narrow the scope from, yes, every saint is given a gift. Some saints are given these gifts that involve leading that involve speaking, that involve teaching. That's what these all have in common, right? The apostles, we're talking about the 12 apostles. They're the foundation of the church. God, they, they literally are witnesses of the resurrection. They walked with Jesus. They have this unique authority from Jesus. They've been personally commissioned to lead his people. The prophets, as we saw back, look back in Ephesians 2, verse 20. It says, the church 
is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So you think about a building, you put down a foundation. How many times do you lay the foundation if you do it right? Okay, one time. You're not continually laying down foundations. These gifts of the apostles and these gifts of the prophets, okay, what are the prophets? They're individuals who declare God's word. They declare the mind of God. Early church, they don't have the Bible yet, so God gifts certain individuals the gift of prophecy so they can say, hey, let's fill in the details here. God literally speaks to them and through them. Those are foundational gifts. The foundation's now been laid. Those gifts in the way that they functioned then have passed off the scene. Now, that said, there are still people who have a unique ability to speak God's word. So prophecy in sort of a generic sense, I do not believe God is giving new revelation. I think the completed revelation of God are the 66 books of the Bible. But there are individuals who take what God has already revealed and declare it with unique power and ability. In a sense, we could call that the gift of prophecy. If you've got that gift, declare God's word with unique power and authority and clarity. Next, we get the um, evangelists. We get this cultural idea of an evangelist as some guy who goes off and buys a fifth wheel and then sort of goes from church to church doing itinerant preaching. I think that's a misunderstanding. Evangelist is simply one who speaks the gospel. You know who's supposed to preach the gospel? Every Christian. All right, all of us are tasked. It's a command. You ever meet someone who is just amazingly fruitful at witnessing? I think of someone like Ray Comfort, uh, Way of the Master. He goes out on the streets and just this amazing ability to really, really clearly present the gospel and this unique boldness and this unique uh, way with conversations. I would say that guy has the gift of evangelism, right? Um, that doesn't mean, oh, good, I don't have to tell people about Jesus. Um, all of us are commanded to tell people about Jesus, whether we like it or we think we're good at it or not. That's a command. If we're not doing it, we're disobeying. But there are some people who are really good at giving the gospel. It's a gift to the church. In the early church, these people would probably travel in an itinerant way, going sort of around the Roman world, proclaiming Jesus and starting churches. I think the modern counterpart of this are missionaries and church planters. So we, we, we're going to go see Andy Gleiser this summer. What is he doing? He's going out and telling people about Jesus, starting a church out in Reno. Or we've got missionaries coming in next month for our missions conference. That's this function of evangelism. And then the, the last two on this list, pastors and teachers. Okay, this is funny. This is the only place in the New Testament where the term pastor is used. Uh, for some reason, we in our church culture latch onto this and be like, oh, that's the guy who leads the church. The most common word you'll see in the New Testament is the term elder. So when you're going along and you find out like the elders of the church did such and such, it's what we think of as pastors. And every church had a group of elders, a group of pastors who led the church. It was never a one-man show. Uh, that's a later development that's not biblical, extra-biblical thing. These elders, they're here called pastors. That word pastor just means a shepherd. All right, so in an agrarian society, a shepherd is a guy, he cares for sheep, he makes sure they're fed, he makes sure that they're protected. That's what pastors, what elders, overseers are meant to do, to ensure that God's people are fed God's word. Okay, that's what the pastor is meant to do, to protect the sheep from the wolves. So my point here is God is building up the church through equipped, equipping every saint. How does he do it? By giving certain people the job within the church to do the equipping. That's what these gifts here are for. These are individuals who God gives as gifts to the church. So he's like the pastor. 
that's a gift to the church. The evangelist, that's a gift to the church. The apostle, the prophet, gifts to the church. Why? Look at verse 12. Why does he give pastors and teachers to the church? By the way, that idea of teacher, the the main way the pastor does his job is by teaching the Bible. Um, All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Why does he give these gifts? For the perfecting of the saints. Um, The idea of perfecting, the equipping of the saints. God gives leaders to the church to speak his word so that the saints... Every member of the church is equipped. And equipped for what end? Equipped for the work of the ministry. Now, you'll notice, uh, if you have a King James Version, there's a comma after the word saints. Which means this. He gave these gifts to the church, so number one, they would equip the saints. So number two, they would do the work of the ministry. So number three, they would do the, the edifying of the body of Christ. That comma suggests that, well, whose job is it to do the work of the ministry? Well, the pastor's. Whose job is it to equip the saints? Well, it's the pastors. I think that comma shouldn't be there. The the grammar of this suggests this. The pastors equip the saints who then do the work of the ministry. Do you hear the difference? So it's not, well, the pastors, well, they equip the saints, and they also do all the work. No, the pastors equip the saints so that every saint is equipped to do the work of the ministry. This obliterates that notion of the clergy and the laity. Oh, there's pastors, they're the professionals, and then there's just the laity who show up and listen to the pastor do hocus-pocus and sprinkle holy water, and then they go on their way. The job of the pastor is to be kind of like a player coach. Hey, I'm going to equip you with the tools, and what are the tools I'm equipping you with? What are the, the tools the pastor's equipped? God's word. So you then have the ability to be empowered and equipped to go and do the work of the ministry. Do you see that in the text? The saints are to be equipped by pastors, by qualified leaders teaching the Bible. Every saint has a spiritual gift, and the goal of church leadership is to help everyone see their gift, find their gift, and use their gift. That's the point. It doesn't say that God gave leaders to the church to do the work of the ministry, but he gave leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So who's doing the work of the ministry? Equipped saints. Grammatically, each of these phrases depends on the one before, like links in a chain. Now, some churches erroneously assume that it's the pastor's job solely to do the work of the, the ministry. It's the pastor's job to grow the church, to be like, man, the church isn't growing, let's get a better pastor, a more charismatic personality. And this is what's given rise to this sort of celebrity culture. Uh, like in evangelical Christianity, where there's one guy, he's a really dynamic speaker, he's really clever and creative, and the church is sort of built around him, and then something happens to that guy and the church collapses, that means that church is not healthy. Right? A healthy church is not built around one guy, uh, unless we're talking about Jesus. A healthy church is every saint equipped to where the pastor, yeah, he's equipping, he's, he's supposed to be leading and, and those sort of things, but it's not built around or upon him. It's not the pastor's job to grow the church, to run the programs, to lead every committee. That not only is wrong, that is dangerous. That leads to burnout. That leads to celebrity culture, to cults of personality. Every member, according to this text, is to be a leader. Every member is essential. If you are a Christian here today, you are a minister. 
That's not a title reserved just for people who've had like some religious ceremony happen to them. You are a minister. You are empowered. You are equipped. You are called to serve the body of Christ. You're commissioned by Jesus to serve his people. Don't get me wrong. I do believe pastors, elders, have a unique calling to lead, and not everyone has the same role. Not everyone has the same position in the gift. But I do believe with all my heart that every saint is to be equipped. The job of the pastors is not to dominate God's people, not to drive God's people, not to be a dictator over them, not to control them or berate them, but to equip and unleash. I've been in churches where the mentality has been, don't mess with God's man, don't lift up your hand on God's anointing, and the pastor's this dictator, and everybody sort of bows before him. That is an unbiblical, wicked mentality. Pastor's job, equip to lead by teaching God's word. I'll even go this far to say, as pastor of Cloverleaf Baptist Church, I have no authority outside of what the word of God says. So you don't come to me to say, what job should I take? What the Bible says, this is the authority, and insofar as I happen to proclaim it rightly, you have to do what the Bible says. But not because I've got some vested authority that, oh, as the pastor, you are a holy man anointed with. No, the Bible's the authority. The Bible is what equips, and the pastor's job is to declare and explain and herald God's word so that God's people are equipped. So the result of this, back to verse 12, is the body of Christ is edified. That word edified means built up. How does God build up the body? Is by gifted leaders equipping empowered saints to do the work of the ministry so that the whole body is built up. When everyone is exercising their gift, finding their place, serving in the unique ways that God calls them to serve, the church is built up. God's vision for this church is for a team of godly elders to equip every saint to use their gift and be engaged in ministry work. Imagine a church that's like that. Imagine a church where our energy goes to developing people rather than just running programs. Imagine a church where instead of cajoling people to sign up, show up, and cheer up, we're unleashing people to do a thousand things that the Spirit lays on their hearts. Instead of just saying, well, we've got these three ministries, come volunteer for them, you say, God's given me a gift and a desire to serve in this area. And we say, let me give you the word of God and equip you with truth, and you go do it. Don't wait for like a program to be organized. Start using your gift. That's what this text is calling us to do. I was joking with Rachel. I said, man, I'm so excited about Sunday. I get to take all of the ministry philosophy I've been thinking about for 10 years and compress it into one 45-minute sermon. Um, so... I'm passionate about this. I don't apologize for that. But it's so awesome when you see the vision God has for his church. But I want to bring us into this final way that God builds his church. He builds his church by empowering every saint. You've got a spiritual gift. By equipping every saint through gifted leaders who declare God's word so you are then equipped to go do ministry work. Finally, God builds his church by engaging every saint. You see, you can be empowered and equipped but not be involved. That's what I mean by engaging. Every saint then finds their place and gets engaged with the the, the goals that God has. Verses 13 to 16 lay out the goals. And the goal is not to have the biggest church in town. The goal is not to have a calendar full of programs. The goal is for people to be like Jesus. Verse 13, till, okay, that's a, a time word, a temporal word, till we all come, till we all arrive in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Till we all arrive unto a perfect man, till we all arrive under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
You notice that we all? Every saint is to be engaged in the pursuit of what? Of unity. That's what verse 13 is describing. There's going to be a day, beloved, when all the redeemed of God stand before the throne of Jesus and we will arrive in perfect unity. It's not going to be a unity that comes by, let's erase all the differences and throw doctrine out the window. It's a unity that's built on, what, the faith. Okay, we all believe in Jesus and we all know Jesus, the knowledge of the Son of God. One day we're going to arrive unto a perfect man. Now, this is not referring to me as an individual, a perfect man. This is referring to the church being pictured as one person comes to the place of perfect maturity and glorification in the presence of Jesus. That's what we're destined for. That's what we're destined for is perfect unity in the presence of Jesus Christ with all of God's redeemed people from all of history. And under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, one day we will be like Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. And Paul's not just throwing this out there to be like, oh, this is pie-in-the-sky stuff. This goal, this destiny motivates us right now to pursue this. Listen, if we are destined one day to all be joined in perfect unity and harmony as the body of Christ... Well, we ought to live that way now. And every one of us should use our gifts to that end to build the unity of the church, to advance people in their knowledge of Jesus, to advance people in their understanding of the faith, to, to, to advance people in their likeness to his character. And the verses 14 and 15 tell us that every saint is to be engaged in the pursuit of individual maturity. Verse 14 says, okay, God's given these gifts. Why? that we henceforth be no more children. And then we've got a bunch of modifiers down, down to verse 15. But speaking of the truth, we may grow up. Um, if we were to sort of diagram this out, God's given gifts, and then here's the purpose. God's given gifts that we would no longer be children, but instead would grow up. Say, so quit being a baby and grow up. That's a call to maturity. Again, notice who this is, that, that we henceforth be no more children, that we... Every believer, every saint saying, I'm going to use my gift to help other people press on to maturity, and I'm going to press on to maturity to be more like Jesus. Every saint should be engaged in that pursuit of being more like Christ. Growing, what does maturity look like? It means growing in discernment. So look at verse 14. It says that we no longer be children. The word here is actually infants. And then he changes metaphors, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. He's like, being immature is like being in a boat that has no rudder and no anchor. And you're out there in the middle of a storm, and whichever way the wind blows, the boat goes that way, and the boat goes that way. Paul would have, by the way, pretty good experience with that kind of thing, like the number of times he was in boats that got smashed on rocks and blown off course. He's saying an immature Christian is like a rudderless boat. An immature Christian is like a baby who has no sense of, like, the difference between a brownie and a dog turd, right? That's just, there's no discernment to tell the difference. He's saying we need to grow in discernment to be able to tell truth from error, right from wrong. You know how we grow in discernment? The way you grow in discernment is by feasting on God's word. You see how this all goes back to God gives these gifts so people teach the Bible so that we can grow and be equipped. It's the Bible. It's being saturated in Scripture more than we are in pop culture. It's being saturated in the truth more than we are exposed to error that develops our sense of right and wrong. Driven with every wind of doctrine, I think that describes so many Christians who go from, you know, one week it's 
one thing, one week, it's another thing. It's one fad from one fad to another fad. From And it's the prayer of Jabez this week. And then the next week, it's like, man, let's do this woke church. And the next week, it's Christian nationalism and just lurching from one fad to the other. Whatever's going, whichever way the winds are going. He's like, that's not what we want. And by the way, he adds this. These doctrinal winds are coming by the slight of men. The idea here is someone who's playing with loaded dice. Someone who's gambling and is cheating. Right? They're trying to deceive you, do a card trick on you, to try to extract something from you. And cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait to deceive. Okay, Paul pretty much pulls out the stops. He's like, these false teachings that are coming are coming from people trying to deceive you. And behind the deception is the deceiver, the one who is throwing his flaming darts trying to take you down. We live in a world where there is deception. You know, the advent of the Internet has brought more sound biblical teaching to our fingertips than at any time in human history. More people than ever before can go online, can go to YouTube, can Google stuff, and find really good, sound Bible teaching. Praise God. You can be anywhere in the world, and with your phone, you can download and read the Bible. That is astounding. More truth is accessible than ever before. But you know what else is also accessible? Is falsehood. Some guy who is really, really confident in what he believes, who's making YouTube videos, and people are like, man, we've had it wrong for like all of church history. If somebody comes along suggesting that he's the first guy to get it right in 2,000 years, run. Right? If somebody comes along and is telling you that if you give money to his ministry, you'll be blessed, run. Somebody comes along and he's not connected to a local church, but is just off floating around on the internet, run. God has appointed his word, and he's appointed the body of Christ to be the means through which he changes the world, not lone lone wolf personalities floating around on the internet. Be careful. So he says, watch out for these people who deceive, but instead, verse 15, by speaking the truth in love, you may grow up. Every saint is in pursuit of this maturity. How does this maturity happen? Speaking the truth in love. I take that to be the, be the means. He says, okay, instead of being children, you instead, verse 15, you need to grow up. How do we grow up? By truthing in love. Literally, the word is truthing. And so people say, well, that means living in truth. I think it's speaking. Everything in the context has been about people speaking God's word. So who's doing the speaking the truth in love? We all. You know what a healthy church is? A healthy church is when every member is so acquainted with the Bible and embraces this responsibility so fully that every member is taking every opportunity to speak the truth in love to other people within the church. That's the goal, where we're all truthing in love, where we're speaking God's truth in love. This is not just the the leaders of the church doing this. This is every saint doing this. What a vision. A church full of people who know the Bible so well, where every member is a minister, every saint has the capacity to speak God's word into other people's lives. He says, when that's happening, the result will be people growing. The result will be maturity. The result will be church growth in the way that matters, being like Christ. Now, as speaking the truth in love. The false teachers speak with deception. If someone is deceiving and lying and they won't tell you what's true just to make you feel good, they're simply trying to get something from you. So I don't want to speak the truth. I'll hurt somebody's feelings. When somebody does that, I don't want to speak the truth because I'll hurt their feelings, is what you're saying is, I want this person to like me more than I want them to know what is true. That's using people. 
That's, that's not loving, that's selfish. So speaking the truth and love, these belong together. They're not an enmity, they, they are friends. Speaking the truth in love doesn't just mean, well, I'm really nice about speaking truth. Speaking the truth in love means my motivation is someone else's ultimate good. I'm going to love someone enough to speak truth, even when that truth may sting, even when the truth may be hard to hear, even when they may not want to hear it. But the motivation is love. The motivation is not just, I'm going to be right, and I'm going to make them, I'm going to put them in their place. No, speaking the truth in love, the motivation is for them to be more like Jesus. Speaking the truth in love. So how can every Christian speak the truth in love? Well, just over the page on Ephesians 5, verse 19, here's one way. We speak to ourselves, literally speak among ourselves, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the simplest ways that every person in this church can be involved in truthing and love is when the song service comes, sing. When, the, when, when we're like, hey, let's sing all hail the power of Jesus' name, I'm going to jump in there because this is biblical truth, and I want other people to hear it. That's one way that every saint can be involved in speaking the truth in love is by singing. Romans 15, 14 says that we can admonish one another. There's another brother or sister in Christ, and they're drifting. You can go put your arm around them and speak the truth to them in love in that one-on-one ministry. Hebrews 3 says, exhort one another daily while it's called a day. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says we come together as the church, and we provoke one another to love and good works. How does this happen? Let me just give you some, some visions of how every one of us in this room can be speaking God's word. It doesn't mean you have to get up and preach a sermon. But speaking the truth in love happens in the home as fathers take the Bible and read the Bible to their families. It's your job, dads. If you're not doing it, you're sinning. It happens in our gatherings when we discuss devotions after church. When you get together with other believers, hey, what did you read in the Word? I was in Ruth this week. Where were you? What did you learn? We're now speaking about the Bible to each other. It happens in fellowship groups. One of the reasons we're doing fellowship groups is so it's sort of normal for us to not just hear the Word but speak the Word. Hey, let me just share what I got from this text of Scripture and what I learned from the sermon, speaking God's Word to other people. It happens when you bring a friend to church on Sunday, and then on your way to lunch at Fusakli's, you're like, hey, what did you think of that sermon? They're like, it was kind of weird, and then you get to share the gospel with them. It happens when you encourage another parent. You see another parent who is like on the front end of parenting, and you're like, I know what it's like. Let me just pray with you. It happens when people just send a note to another believer and say, let me offer a word of encouragement based on the Scripture. It happens when you call that person who is unable to come to church and you encourage her. It happens when you share how God has taught you when we gather on Sunday nights and have our Q&A time. Here's my point. Truthing in love, speaking the truth in love, is not a one-size-fits-all. All of us are going to do it differently, but all of us need to be doing it. Speaking God's truth to other people. It can happen on a one-on-one setting. It can happen in a small group. It can happen in a formal setting where you're teaching a Sunday school class. You don't have to have a position, though, to speak God's word. Verse 16 summarizes this whole thing. From whom the whole body fitly joined and compacted. Okay, so now we're, this is a complex sentence here, verse 16. From whom? Okay, from Christ. Okay, he's the head of the body. He's the source. He's the one who rules. The, 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 the sentence in verse 16 is this. The whole body, and then there's all of these modifiers, maketh increase of the body. Here's the stunning thought in verse 16. When every saint who's been placed in the body by Christ is using the gift given to them from Christ, when we're all doing that, when we're all using our gifts, when we're all speaking the word of God, you know what the body naturally does? The body grows itself. 
That's what healthy bodies do. They grow themselves. So Christ is the source. And then he mentions here the, um, every joint, every ligament. That's, a, that's an allusion, I believe, to the leaders who have this, this, this role of tying things together. And then according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, every saint has a role. So every leader has a role. Every saint has a role. When we are all fulfilling the roles that God has given to us, you know what happens? The body builds itself. When every one of us is speaking God's word to each other and speaking the gospel to people who aren't here, you know what's going to be really natural? Is the church is going to grow spiritually. We're going to deepen our walk with Jesus as we speak God's word to each other. And it is going to grow numerically as we tell other people about Jesus. We speak, the truth, we speak the truth and love to people who are in this room and people who are outside of this room, and church growth will be natural. A healthy church will be a growing church. Spiritual growth will result in numerical growth. We take care of the depth of our ministry. God will take care of the breadth of our ministry. What a vision for a church. What a different way of doing church than say, let's just get like the, the best entertainment up here and let's just make this really awesome and everyone will come in and think it's really awesome as well and they'll bring their friends and it'll be a big spectacle. But when the, the personality leaves or the music stops, everybody just goes home. Instead, we have real relationship. We have a web of relationships that are built on the word of God. A place where it's not just one guy doing it. It's the whole church serving. That's Jesus' vision for building Cloverleaf Baptist Church or any church. And it does not matter what happens in the culture. It doesn't matter how secular the culture gets. Builds his church by every saint using their gifts, speaking God's word for his glory. So how do we reverse the decline of the church in the West? I don't know that there is a one single answer. I don't think any of us have the capacity to be like, we're going to change the trajectory of the entire. But we can say this. If we say we're going to focus on simply being the church, as has been defined by God's word, we're going to say, I'm going to find my gift. I'm going to use it. I'm going to get off the sidelines and get onto the field. I'm going to be involved, not just sort of volunteering, but speaking God's word to to people. That will grow the church. When we say we're going to be the church, not a social club, we're going to be the church, not a music venue. We're going to be the church, not a political action committee. We're going to be the assembly of the risen king. We're going to be the society of the redeemed rebels. We're going to be an outpost of heaven on earth. We're going to embrace our calling. We're going to be what Jesus called us to be. I believe with all my heart that is when and that is how. Jesus grows his church. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we praise you.